So we talked uh, just a few weeks ago about worship and how important it is. And, you know, when we worship, we remember that uh, contrary to our daily belief that we're in charge, that God is in charge. And there are days when somebody else being in charge creates anxiety in you because you have a desire to orchestrate the events of your life. And as you watch things unfold and it feels like nobody's at the wheel or, my goodness, could anything stranger happen? And every day, my friend Tom in the back says, it's like there's a surprise party every day and you're the guest of honor. That's what he said. And I thought, oh, that's exactly how it feels. And it's this feeling of, oh, my goodness. And, but worship reminds you that the earth belongs to the Lord and everything in it and all who live in it. And I don't know about you, but I need that reminder a lot. Uh, so that I don't grab the wheel myself or start uh, manipulating or orchestrating uh, to keep anxiety at a livable level, you know, those kinds of things. And so as we're in this series, we're taking a snapshot in the Old Testament of the, the exiles coming back from their time in Babylon and Persia. And of course, a whole bunch came back, 50,000 people came back. And when they came back, they began to work on the temple. But that's not very many Jews in terms of the overall population that had either been taken into exile or certainly proliferated while they were in exile. There were a lot of people that were left. And while they were back in Persia, some drama ensued. And there's a story that's nestled in the Old Testament that kind of is a standalone story that we'll spend a little time with this week and just draw a few lessons from. And it might be a story that you're familiar with, and it might not. So we're going we're gonna to set the stage for you uh, for the book of Esther and the story of Esther. Um, but you could read it this week in about a half an hour probably. Um, and it would be good for you to read it, but for you to kind of tap into where we're headed and the things we're talking about today, um, you're going to need the context of the story. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you a setup and talk to you about the main characters, and then I'm going to introduce you to a resource that many of us who follow Jesus use on a regular basis, and then you'll get a, a glimpse of that resource. So this is back in Persia. Meanwhile, back in Persia, there's some things going on, uh, high drama, and this is probably the case for you if you haven't made it back out of exile yet. If you're watching online and there's a whole crew online, um, maybe you feel like you're still in exile and this idea of our series being the way back home, you're thinking, well, I've been home, I'm staying home, I'm not leaving home. So if that's the case for you and even still pretty often for many of you even in this room, know that uh, the Bible speaks to that. So there are some characters in this story, you ought to know who they are and just some idea. Uh, you might remember it wasn't Xerxes, who was the king of Persia when the exiles went back, but Xerxes is king of Persia now when the, king, when the story of Esther kicks off, which the story of Esther, if we were to place it historically, it's probably sometime before the temple is fully completed, maybe shortly after, but before Ezra makes his journey uh, down with more people, more exiles. So there's Xerxes, he's the king. He's got a queen. Her name is Vashti. Say it with me. It's fun to say. Vashti. Very good. And then there's a couple other characters, three more to be exact, that you need to know about. Uh, Esther, whom the book is named after, um, will soon know her as Queen Esther, which ought to make you sense some dramas about to ensue because we already have a queen, right? Kind of a big deal. She has an uncle in the story who plays an important role, and his name's Mordecai. 
and Mordecai and Esther are Jewish uh, people. And Mordecai helped raise Esther. Esther's parents passed away, and so he helped raise Esther. When this story takes place, Esther's probably 17, 18, 19 years old, something like that. And then, of course, there is uh, the villain of the story, and his name is Haman, and, uh, and he plays an important role as well. Now, one of the resources that I use pretty often and that many folks that I know that study the Bible or want to understand the context of Scripture, uh, a set of videos and teachings by a group uh, called The Bible Project. And so if you Google The Bible Project, you'll find their stuff. If you go to YouTube and search The Bible Project, you'll see their stuff. But if you've ever wondered, I, I, just, I just can't get the, the scope of Scripture uh, you know, in my mind. I don't, don't really understand the, the story that God is telling, then the Bible Project would be so useful for you. You're going to get a glimpse of just a piece of about a nine-minute video that we've edited down to about uh, just a little over five minutes that tells the whole story of what happens in the book of Esther. Um, you know, so I don't know, with another 20 minutes, you could read the whole thing, but you're going to see it, you're going to hear it, and it's visually represented. And so if you're online, you'll get to see it. It'll be on the screen in front of you. And right here in this room, you'll see it on these screens as well. So the story of Esther, see if you can track with, uh, really the narrative, because that is where we're going to get the meat from today. Let's watch. The book opens with the King of Persia throwing two elaborate banquet feasts that last a total of 187 days. And it's all for the grandiose purpose of displaying his greatness and splendor. On the last day of the banquet feast, he's really drunk, and he demands that his wife, Queen Vashti, appear at the party to show off her beauty. She refuses, and so in a drunken rage, the king deposes Vashti and makes the silly decree that all Persian men should now be the masters of their own homes. Then he holds a beauty pageant because he wants to find a new queen. This is like a really bad soap opera. But it's right here that we're introduced to Esther and Mordecai. Esther hides her Jewish identity and enters the beauty pageant and wins. And the king is so obsessed with Esther that he elevates her to become the new queen of Persia. Now after this, and even more serendipitous, is the fact that Mordecai just happens to overhear two royal guards plotting to murder the king. And so he informs Esther, who in turn informs the king, and Mordecai gets credit for saving the king's life. Now right here from the beginning, God's not mentioned anywhere, but this all seems providentially ordered. What is it that God's up to? You have to keep reading. We're next introduced to Haman, who's not actually a Persian. He's called an Agagite. He's a descendant of the ancient Canaanites. Remember 1 Samuel chapter 15. The king elevates Haman to the highest position in the kingdom, and he demands that everybody kneel before Haman. Well, when Mordecai sees Haman, he refuses to kneel, which of course fills Haman with rage. And when he finds out that Mordecai's Jewish, Haman successfully persuades the king to enact this crazy decree to destroy all of the Jewish people. And to decide the date of the Jews' annihilation, Haman rolls the dice. A die is called pur in Hebrew. Tuck that away for later. Eleven months later, on the 13th of Adar, all the Jews will die. Haman and the king then have a drinking banquet to celebrate their really horrible decision. So the focus now turns to Mordecai and Esther, who are the only hope for the Jewish people. They make a plan that Esther's going to reveal her Jewish identity to the king and ask him to reverse the decree. But approaching the king without a royal request is, according to Persian law, an act worthy of death. 
So in a key statement, Mordecai, he's confident that even if Esther remains silent, that deliverance for the Jews will arrive from another place. And then Mordecai wonders aloud. He says, who knows? Maybe you've become queen for this very moment. Esther responds with bravery, and she purposes to go to the king with her amazing words, if I perish, I perish. Now, in what unfolds, we watch the ironic reversal of all of Haman's evil plans. So Esther hosts the king and Haman at a first banquet, and she says that she wants to make a special request of both of them at an exclusive banquet the following day. So Haman leaves the banquet totally drunk, and he sees Mordecai in the street. He fumes with anger, and he orders that a tall stake be built so that Mordecai can be impaled upon it in the morning. It seems like things can't get any worse for the Jews and for Mordecai. But all of a sudden, the story pivots. It just so happens that night, the king, he can't sleep. And he has the royal chronicles read to him for good bedtime reading. And he just happens to hear about how Mordecai had saved the king's life. He had totally forgotten. So in the morning, Haman enters to request Mordecai's execution. And the king in that moment orders Haman to honor Mordecai publicly for saving his life. So now Haman has to lead Mordecai around the city on a royal horse, telling everyone to praise him. Now this moment in the story, it's a pivot for the whole book. It begins Haman's downfall and Mordecai's rise to power. Watch how this works. The day after is Esther's second banquet. So the king and Haman arrive, and Esther informs the king that, first of all, she's Jewish, and second, that Haman has enacted a decree to murder her and to murder Mordecai, who saved his life, and to murder all of the Jews. Now, the king's had a lot to drink, so when he hears this news, he goes into yet one more drunken rage, and he orders that Haman be impaled on the very stake he made for Mordecai. It's ironic and a grisly way for Haman to go. Haman's execution, however, doesn't solve the problem of the decree to kill all of the Jews. So the focus now turns to Esther and Mordecai as they make a plan to reverse the decree. They discover that the king can't revoke a decree that he's already made. So instead, the king commissions Mordecai to issue a counter-decree. On the appointed day that all of the Jews were supposed to be killed, the 13th of Adar, now the Jews are ordered to defend themselves and to destroy any who plotted to kill them. Then Mordecai, Esther, and Jews everywhere hold banquets and feasts to celebrate this new decree, and Mordecai is elevated to a seat beside the king. Eventually, the decreed day comes, and the Jews triumph over their enemies. First, they destroy Haman's family, and then any other Persian officials who had joined in Haman's plot. And then on a second day, they get permission to destroy any who plotted against them throughout the entire kingdom. This results in joy and celebration as the Jews are rescued from annihilation. The story then tells about how Esther and Mordecai established by decree this annual two-day feast of Purim to commemorate their deliverance from destruction. And the name of the feast comes from Haman's dice. Remember, poor him. The book concludes with a short epilogue as Mordecai is elevated to second in command in the kingdom, and we are told now of his royal greatness and splendor as the Jews thrive in exile. It's a great story. Uh, how many of you had heard the story of Esther before? Let me see your hands, okay? If you hadn't, that's great. It kind of puts the pieces together. The story of Esther is the kind of story in Scripture that I often have to read again and again to remind myself of the details and who did what and when did they do it and how did it all unfold. If you're not familiar with it, you ought to spend some time in it and read it. Why in the world would you want to read this ancient story, though, that's just nestled in Scripture? I mean, you could go your whole life following Jesus 
and not have any real knowledge of the story of Esther. The New Testament tells us that all scripture, every bit of it, is breathed by God and it's useful for helping us learn to know what it means to follow Jesus. It's useful for teaching us and correcting us and rebuking us. The New Testament tells us also that God's scripture is like a a double-edged sword, that it knows how to divide our our thoughts and our motives, and, and it takes us to a place where we have now an understanding of who we are in Christ and where Christ is leading us. And I have to let you know that as I'm reading the story of Esther this week, in the last two weeks really, and pondering it in regards to our current cultural deal, uh, what's happening right now in our society and with our neighbors as we watch the news unfold, I could not find a more applicable or relevant story than the story of Esther. And it will help you, I believe. It will help me as we sort of deal with living in exile and finding our way back home figure out what it means to know and love Jesus and represent him well in this world so that we can be like him with the people that we come in contact with. And so it's 10 chapters. Some of the chapters are really short and just a few verses. Um, But there are two thoughts I want you to ponder as we let this story teach us something about who Jesus is and who he wants us to be. And the first big idea is just this one. Learn to embrace ambiguity. Say ambiguity with me. Ambiguity. Ambiguity is this idea that there are two thoughts and they're seemingly opposing thoughts, almost as if there's one and if one is true, the other can't be true. And they seem to fight each other, maybe even ideologically or philosophically. But I've heard some people say that the, the real mark of maturity is to hold two thoughts that are seemingly contradictory, but absolutely true at the same time and understand them and embrace them, and know that they're real, and know that they have maybe different facets of truth that you can see as if you were holding a diamond and turning it and looking at it from different angles. If you're going to know what it means to follow Jesus, if you're going to be able to understand Scripture and read it well, then you're going to have to learn to embrace ambiguity. And we don't like ambiguity. I mean, we love black and white, don't we? I mean, we love right and wrong. We love clarity. We love the difference between, you know, should we go left, should we go right? You know, uh, politics aside, right? No, No pun intended. All of these things, we love it when we can just know the answer. But the truth is that in Scripture, ambiguity is all through it. And if you're gonna understand this story, then you have to embrace it. And this is true in your life as well. At the very beginning of the story, Queen Vashti is deposed. Now, in a, in a Me Too culture and in a racially divided culture, uh, it's very interesting to read the story of Esther with those two things with a backdrop because, of course, it turns into a beauty pageant and very misogynistic, very patriarchal, very male-dominated. He just deposes her because he, she won't do what she wants. And then if now, now the king is left to find a queen, and so... What ensues, of course, is just offensive and really reprehensible in Persian culture. But our main characters, Esther and Mordecai, appear because of this need to have a queen. And then we begin to see ambiguity ensue. I mean, we would love to believe that there's a hero, Mordecai or Esther, if you will, and that there's a villain, obviously, Haman, the evil Haman. But it gets murky very quickly in the story. So the king is looking 
the, look, the king is looking for a queen, and he sends out word across all the land, and some people are selected. I imagine some volunteer, some are voluntold or whatever, and they show up and begin to enter into this what really amounts to a beauty pageant, a beauty contest. And it lasts a long time. I mean, before someone has even entered into the possibility of becoming queen, they're, they go through 12 months of stuff. You ought to read it. It's an interesting story. Esther gets selected as well. And it's unclear whether Esther is, is drawn in and chosen or whether she's sort of pushed forward by Mordecai. I'm not really sure. The text doesn't say. But here's what it says in Esther 2.10. Esther had not revealed her nationality. She's what? She's Jewish, that's right, and she didn't reveal her family background. It's, it's implying and pretty obvious and clear that if Esther had said, oh, you know, you don't want me to be in the running for this thing, I'm, I'm Jewish, that those in charge would have said, gotcha, we didn't understand, you know, go back home, be about your business, but she didn't. She didn't say she wasn't Jewish, she just didn't tell, and the reason she didn't tell, well, Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Now, in this story, Mordecai is really a father figure, and he is taking her along. He's kind of helping her. But it's not very clear as to why Mordecai made this decision. Is it because he's afraid she'll be mistreated? Not necessarily. Is it because he hopes that she'll maybe find her way into the royal palace with a position? Maybe. We don't know. But Mordecai had said, whatever you do, don't tell. Now, the Jews are in exile. They're first in Babylon and then they're in Persia. And they're around people who believe different things, worship different gods, have different ways of life. And so I don't know what Mordecai's thinking here. It could be he's thinking, you know, I don't know, when in Rome, maybe, possibly, just do what they do. But all through this story, there are all kinds of things, all kinds of behaviors that Esther and Mordecai himself and probably other Jews as well, engage in that violate the laws of the Torah. In fact, ponder it just for a moment. Esther is up for becoming queen, right? Well, the Torah is very clear about not marrying somebody from a foreign nation. And oh my goodness, this is the very thing that they're hoping for or working toward or at least believe is a distinct possibility because of Esther coming back. Now, the banquets, of course, all kinds of foods that they ate that the Torah would have prohibited, not to mention the drunkenness. If you caught some of the details just in the storyline that the Bible Project presented, drunkenness plays a central role in this whole story. The king, of course, is, as he said, somewhat of a pushover and just kind of says yes to everything in the story. But nonetheless, it's pretty clear that even Esther and Mordecai find themselves in a place where living strictly according to the Torah, even in exile, wasn't clearly their chief aim. And then the book tells us this. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman. This is the point in the story where things get a little dicey. Before this occurred, there's no real tension between those who are residents of Persia or Canaanites or from other various countries and the Jewish people. There's no real tension there. But now the tension is going to take center stage, and it takes center stage mainly because of what occurs here. Haman was to be honored, and the king had commanded it. 
And the way he said you're to honor Haman is if you're a part of the royal palace or the royal guard, which Mordecai probably was, you're to give Haman some honor when you see him. You're to give him some due. He's a good leader, the king says. He has a prominent position. He's done well for me. And Mordecai sees Haman. We got a clue in the video as to why this happens, but we're not exactly sure. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. What's interesting about this is, as we said, the tension wasn't there until this occurred. But then it does occur, and now it's off to the races. The the fuming feud between Mordecai and Haman is what's going to cause everything else in the book that follows. Because they can't get along. They can't agree. It's, it's, It's awful. It's very tense. And even now, contemporary rabbis can't even begin to agree on why Mordecai would not kneel down or pay honor to Haman. There's no way that Mordecai would be a part of the royal guard if he hadn't learned the habit of paying honor to people who were in authority over him. It's the nature of kingships and the the culture that they lived in. So Mordecai had been used to giving honor to people above him, the king or maybe even the people that worked for the king. But something about Haman got under Mordecai's skin. Maybe it was because he was a Canaanite and, you know, Jewish people and Canaanites, you know, they had some serious conflict that goes back all the way to the beginnings of Genesis. But why? Why would Mordecai decide, this is the hill I'm going to die on? The truth is, when you read the story and you understand what's happening culturally there, it's really hard to find a hero or a villain. And we would love to find a hero or villain because ambiguity makes us uncomfortable and it creates all kinds of tension. In fact, we love to find heroes and villains in almost every area of our life. And the truth is this, heroes and villains make for great movies. They really do. But they make for horrible life lessons, horrible circumstances in our lives. When we try to ascribe heroship or somebody's dastardly villainy status We have to learn to embrace the ambiguity. It's simplistic thinking that gets us into a a rut or a pattern of belief that creates division between us and other people. It's simplistic thinking that is creating the culture divide that you're experiencing right now. It's simplistic thinking. It's a lack of being able to deal with ambiguity that creates disunity. And it always leads to hate. It's black and white thinking that makes life so easy and cut and dried. But that shortcut that we take with black and white thinking, it usually leads us to division and deciding that we can cast judgment on people people that we shouldn't be judging at all. You remember when Jesus said to the Pharisees, we we referenced this a few weeks ago, um, he was trying to explain to them their problem, and he said, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. You remember that? Here's what Jesus said before he said that, the statement that he made right before. He says this to the Pharisees, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens. And he even lists a few in the original text. You know, you you tie these herbs, but you ignore 
the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. And of course, the three words that every pastor loves in all of the New Testament, you should tithe. So just underline that if you don't mind, that'd be great. You should tithe. But then he goes on to say this, yes, of course you should, but do not neglect the more important things. This is exactly what's happening right now as the country faces immense and deep and significant division. Not knowing the difference between the issues that matter and the superficial stuff that's just right there. Easy, easy to pick on. You see it all the time. And if you're not careful, you're going to fall prey to it. And if you're anything like me, you already have. Because we see the discussion, and what happens is somebody takes a very simplistic, easy-to-believe idea that's probably true, and they build an entire ideology out of that one thought. And the result on the other end, mistakes in logic, difficulty in getting along with other people, and then the entire ideology is built on one very simple idea that what? Well, you should obey the law. This was the, the heart of the Pharisees. Obeying the law is the chief idea. And Jesus says it's not the chief idea. You've, you've mistakenly set aside the weightier, the more important aspects of the law. What are they? Obedience and morality? No, 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 no. Look what Jesus says. Justice and mercy and faith. I'm not saying you shouldn't tithe, Jesus says. You you should, absolutely. You should read the law and you should follow it. But you can't strain out a gnat and then swallow a camel. And that is what's happening in our culture right now. And it happens when you cannot embrace ambiguity. It happens when you read a story like Esther and you think, well, Haman's a villain. Esther and Mordecai, they're the heroes. Or... You do that with any portion of scripture, or you do it with any news story that you read today or any headline that you see. Well, this is clearly wrong. This is clearly right. Odds are the people who hold opposing views regarding, you fill in the blank, whatever the subject is, doesn't matter. People who hold opposing views, if they could thoughtfully exchange ideas, they would find that most of what they believe and think, even the values that they hold, are very similar. But not when culture is divided. Not when you've decided to strain out a gnat and swallow a camel or miss the weightier issues. And so when I read the story of Esther, I realize, ah, Mordecai, man, he's a stubborn dude. Probably got the Jews in some serious trouble. And Esther, I don't know. I don't know why she desired deeply to be married into a foreign government authority. And when we say married, we know married's in quotes, right? Because all it takes is the king to say, nah, you're out. Why would she want anything to do with that? I have no idea. But as the story unfolds and the ambiguity comes to the surface, we realize that God is still at work. And our desire to keep things black and white and sectioned off Well, they don't help us know what it means to follow Jesus. So what would it look like if you learned to embrace ambiguity? 
Well, maybe you need to do that as you read the news and as you have discussions with friends and family and as you think through the issues that are so weighty today that you do not ignore the more important aspects of the law ever. These are always weightier, always more important things of justice and mercy and faith. These issues trump every issue that's out there. They come into the priority importance. They ought to be the values that we engage in. That's what we do. So we do this by setting aside hero and villain thinking, black and white thinking. Everyone I know is tempted toward it these days. That's the first thing we do. Set it aside. It's not helpful. When you find yourself going down that road, just back up four steps and decide, ah, I can see where this is headed. I'm getting ready to put somebody into a category and people don't belong in categories. They don't at all. I mean, things belong in categories, but people do not belong in categories. So I'm going to back up from that. That's what I'm going to do first. No heroes, no villains, just people trying to find their way. Then the second thing I'm going to do is remember this idea. And this is probably as important, if not more. You cannot judge and love at the same time. You cannot. You can do one or the other. But you cannot judge and love at the same time. And if you're setting aside love, then you're moving away from Jesus. Every time you're moving away from him. Well, it doesn't mean you can't be discerning. That's not what I said. It doesn't mean you can't be thoughtful. It doesn't mean you don't weigh things or look for good evidence that God's in the center of things. No, no, that's all good. But you cannot judge and you cannot love at the exact same time. And love always takes priority. Here's the other thing that's really important about this story. And you caught a, maybe a glimpse of it during the video, and it's this. Esther is the only book in Scripture that literally has no mention of God at all. God is not mentioned in any way. And it seems as if the author, we don't know who the author is, but it seems as if the author, him or her, whoever it was, has gone down this road of not mentioning God on purpose. It feels like the author has gone out of their way to not mention God at all. In fact, there are several points when it would have been so easy to just sort of you know, lay a little thought out or, or mention God's name, but the author has decided God is going to play in the background of this story. So, you know, when the decree is made, all Jews will die. Mordecai says, you need to go see the king. And Esther says, well, if I do, I could die. And so they have this discussion. Mordecai wants her to go, and she's nervous about going. And so this is what it says in the book that you saw it referenced. Do not think that because, Mordecai says to Esther through a messenger, do not think that because you were in the king's house that you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance, no mention of God. Who's going to deliver? Of course God is. Who's at work in the background here? Well, of course God is, but God is not mentioned in any way. For the Jews, it will arise from another place. I mean, you and your father's family, which includes Mordecai, by the way, will perish. And then this, of course, the most well-known verse out of the book of Esther. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. This is true of you. I mean, how many days have you walked throughout your day 
You got maybe the end of the day. For some of us, maybe it's a week. For some of us, maybe it's a month or a long period of time, and you haven't really given God a thought. You haven't really thought much about him. Maybe you didn't read scripture. Maybe you didn't actually, you know, formally pray or address God in any sort of prayerful way. But the truth is this, that God is always at work. You don't have to name him. You don't have to say it. You don't even have to acknowledge it. He doesn't wait for you to invoke his name to be active and involved in your life. And Mordecai makes this clear. Deliverance will come one way or the other. But who knows? Same for you. That you were not put in your family, your job, your place, your relationships, your unique social setting for such a time as this. And so Esther decides she's going to go see the king. And she says this. So here's what I want you to do. She sends a message back to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. It's so strange that this text says this, and fast for me. In fact, it would be so unusual for a Jew to mention fasting without mentioning praying. They just go together hand in hand, fasting and praying, fasting and praying. You see it in the New Testament all the time, Old Testament as well, fasting and praying. But prayer is not even mentioned. That doesn't mean they're not praying. In fact, I would say this about the people that I know that follow Jesus. If you have to tell me how spiritual you are, then we probably have a problem. If you have to wear it only in the things that are visible and seen by others, then there's probably a deeper issue in your walk. Some of the most spiritual, devoted, committed people I know, they do so in such a quiet and understated way and believe and know that through their life and through their actions, God is at work in mighty ways. And so she says, fast for me. Do not eat or drink three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king. And then, as was mentioned, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. And so she goes, fast and pray. Of course they prayed. Mahalo need to say it. Of course you pray. Even if you don't invoke God's name, you pray. When you decide that you need help and you ask for help, who else would you ask except the Lord of the universe? God is all through our culture. And I love that the book of Esther makes no mention of God. I don't think it's an a, a awful omission in any way. It reminds us that when we're in a season like we're in, where it feels like the very fabric is being ripped apart and who knows what will happen over the next six months and are we, are we improving, are we da- is, it, is it coming back, is it going away, is a vaccine imminent, is the economy, you fill in the blank, that God is at work. God is doing his thing. God's plan cannot be thwarted. God's purposes follow a straight line, listen close, from the moment that God spoke anything into existence to the moment that all of the promises of Scripture will be completely fulfilled, the new heaven, the new earth. It is a straight line. It is not bendable by any human. It's not possible to move him off course And if the book of Esther teaches us anything, it teaches us this. Even though God is not mentioned, he is working tirelessly in the background to see that his purposes are accomplished. And he can use Haman. 
He can use Mordecai. He can use Xerxes. He can use Esther. He can use Ezra. He can use Zerubbabel, and he can use Nehemiah. And if you're not comfortable with ambiguity, then the rest of Ezra is really going to cause some trouble for you. When you read the book of Nehemiah, you're going to think, I don't like what I read. If you haven't read the Old Testament and thought, I don't understand what God's up to, then you haven't embraced ambiguity because ambiguity will help you understand that God is active even when things are not going well by all appearance sakes. Why? How do we know this? The scripture that was above on the screen during worship is this, Psalm 24.1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Say it with me. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Say it with me again. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And then it says this. The world and most of its people. No, 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 no. Well, the U.S. and those who, no, no, no. The world and all of its people belong to him. Is that true? Do you believe that? No, no, no. I mean, you believe it in here. You're around church people. Do you believe it out there? Do you believe it when you come in contact with somebody that you just think, ah, hero or villain, this is easy. I can put them in a category in about five seconds. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Who do we belong to? The Lord. What does it say? The world and all its people belong to him. And this is why we belong to him. It says in Colossians, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. In whom we have, what's the word? Say it again. It means purchase back. We belong to him. He has purchased us back. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's this idea that symbolizes the meal that we share together. That we have been purchased back into a relationship with God. That because of the death of Jesus, which is represented by his body and this bread, and the pouring out of his blood that's represented by this juice, these emblems comprise the sacrament that remind us that we belong to God. That we do not belong to ourselves. And we take this meal together as a family because we need reminding that God is in control, that we belong to him, that he is operating in the fabric of space and time every moment of every day. And because of that, we can trust that his purposes will be fulfilled and the outcome can be trusted and that he alone is worthy of our worship. And he alone is the one that we exalt. And so in just a moment, you'll pick up some bread and you will remember that Jesus said, this is my body and it's broken for you. And then you'll have a a cup that will contain some of this that represents the blood of Jesus, remembering that Jesus passed this around to his friends and said, this is my blood. It represents the new covenant And it's poured out for you. And so we will take it together.
with people in this room and together with those that are online at home because God knows no distance. We're together in one place. So the communion that is in front of you and the seats in front of you uh, is there and you just peel back. There's some bread and peel back another layer And if you're in a front row or don't have a seat in front of you, then our ushers will make their way around to be sure you get served. And we have a few minutes together because we take communion with these online, and so we give a little more time for this. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that during this moment of communion, as we observe this sacrament, that we are fully engaged in remembering that your son died on the cross, conquering death, displaying his love for us in all of its fullness, and that we have been rescued from the dominion of darkness, that no longer over us is the power of sin or even the weight of the guilt of sin, that we are free, for Jesus said, if I set you free, You are free indeed. So, Lord, we declare your might and your power, but we also declare the intimacy of your love, how you have nurtured us to this very moment where we are willing to open our hands before you and experience your grace as if for the very first time. So, Lord, we honor you with these emblems. And we pray that you would meet us in this moment. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.